Hello and welcome to the Psychomedia Podcast. I'm Timothy Elizabeth Swan, and I'm going to be discussing the funny side of psychology. Sadly, the real Timothy Swan can't be with us this week, as he's busy standing in for John Stewart and Oliver as host of The Daily Show, actually. Uh, so since I think we can all agree that it's Tim's comedic milkshake that brings all the boys to this particular psychological yard, I'll try and make this week's bereft demi-episode short and to the point. As for the specifics of said point, uh, it primarily involves a discussion of lecherous Frenchmen, but more on that later. So, because rigidly adhering to our arbitrarily imposed structure is the only way I can deal with the crushing timlessness, let's begin with some backfeeding. Just one uh, short dorsal morsel this week. This one comes in from Randall, Jack Andros on Twitter, Twitter who writes... Uh, request for at Team Psychomedia, can you cover the fundamental attribution error? I looked it up after Tetrarch Angel, but I still don't get it. Well, Randall, we could probably squeeze out a whole show on this sort of thing, and may end up doing so at some point. However, I know you won't just be able to resume normal physical and psychological function until this is resolved, so I shall attempt a quick explanation here. When we talk about attributions in social psychology, we mean those times when we infer something about someone based on their behaviour. For example, if we observe someone wearing a brown coat t-shirt and viciously slamming their head into a wall, we might infer that they are a Joss Whedon fan who's just heard that Firefly is being made into an iPad game. Now, that would be a pretty reasonable attribution, and given the circumstances, probably accurate. But often people make mistakes in their attributions, and one of the most common such mistakes is the fundamental attribution error. The fundamental attribution error is also known as the correspondence bias, and describes the tendency for people to overestimate the effect of personality and underestimate the effect of situation in the behaviours of others. For example, if you were to see a man in the street energetically fighting a dog, you are more likely to infer that the man is a cruel, violent, animal-hating bastard, or possibly really just more of a cat person, than you are to take a situ situational view of his behaviour. Maybe the dog stole his wallet. Maybe the dog is in fact a robot or demon disguised as a dog on a mission to assassinate the president. Maybe the man is actually an actor filming a scene for the new season of Heroes with the tagline, Kill the small dog, save the world. As it is, we rarely make these kind of situational attributions, tending generally to prefer the personality-based or dispositional inferences. Now, there are a bunch of possible explanations for this. For example, when observing others' behaviour, we aren't usually aware of all the situational variables involved. In the curious case of the dog-fighting man, perhaps we only arrived on the scene after the dog had stolen his wallet, or after it had appeared slavering from a demonic portal in the pavement. Alternatively, some would argue that the dispositional attributions are actually evolutionarily adaptive. If we learn something about someone's personality from watching their behaviour, that information is potentially useful to us if we have to deal with that person in future. If we know that a man is a violent, dog-hating misconthrope, we will know not to subsequently invite him to our puppy parade. I don't actually know if puppy parades are a thing, or if miscanthropes is a correctly derived neologism, or if this explanation has really helped Randall understand the fundamental attribution error, but I do now have an amusing mental image of Channing Tatum in White House Down with all the terrorists replaced with Cocker Spaniels, and hopefully you do too. So, 
What have I done this fortnight? Moving on. Well, mostly this fortnight I've been cowering in fear under a blanket to avoid the deadly flame rays of the evil yellow sun demon. Summer is objectively the worst season, and I'm not just saying that because I'm ginger, or, to put it another way, I'm definitely just saying that because I'm ginger. The thing is, normally when a heat wave like this happens I just stay inside, I surround myself with several office fans and keep away from open windows, but the problem is, a few weeks ago, I think I must have been infected with some kind of mind-altering parasite that fills me with an overpowering urge to go to the gym every day. Possibly the parasite or fungus or whatever it is is in league with the orange bastard in the sky. I don't know, but the upshot is I've gone through two bottles of extremely expensive sun cream already, and although I've thus far managed to thwart the machinations of the shiny solar asshole, I can't help feeling that it's only a matter of time until I'm caught short in an open field or outdoor car park and end up crumbling to dust like the melatonin-challenged borderline vampire that I am. So, uh, that's what I've been doing, perspiring voluminously and fearing for my very existence. I hope, sincerely, that your fortnight was better. So, to the media of the fortnight. Since Tim isn't here, I feel justified in having two media for you, both of them, local multiplayer-based indie video games, because I am nerd, hear me roar. The first is called Hidden in Plain Sight and wins the coveted Psychomedia Award for video games that sometimes make you think about how your brain works, maybe. Uh, it's basically five mini-games which you can play with up to three friends or enemies, they don't specify. Uh, the games are all based around stealth, subterfuge, and trying to convince the other players that you're actually an NPC. For example, in the game called Ninja Party, each of you controls a little sprite man in a big room full of about 30 or so other little sprite men all wandering around. Your job is to work out which sprite man is you, and then work out which of the other sprite men are the players, and then brutally murder them. The problem is, once you attack someone, it becomes very obvious to the other players who you are, and so on and so forth. In the other modes, uh, for example, you have to race your characters to a finish line, but each player also has a sniper rifle with one bullet that they can use if they work out who the other players are. That sort of thing. Uh, it's on PC and Xbox Live, it costs like $2, so I heartily recommend checking it out. Uh, the other game couldn't be more different in terms of its tone. It's called Bro Force, and involves playing as one of a wide selection of action movie heroes as they charge through completely destructible levels, mowing down hordes of baddies with an assortment of impractically explosive weaponry. Uh, the cool mechanic is that scattered throughout the level are several hostages in cages, and each time you rescue one, they are revealed as a new action movie character who you then become. Uh, so you might start the level as John Rambo with a machine gun and grenades and then switch to Robocop to use his homing bullets, then switch to Indiana Jones to grapple around using the whip, and finally you switch to the Terminator to finish off the end boss with a Gatling gun so powerful it pushes you backwards as you fire. Every level ends with you flying away on a helicopter as the entire map explodes and a rockin' 80s metal soundtrack plays, and frankly it's just awesome. Um, as far as I know, this one is only on PC, but you can play an early beta build right now in your browser window, uh, so head to the show notes for a link to that. Anyway, there you go. Hidden in plain sight and Broforce, both awesome. Both great if you've got a couple of Xbox controllers kicking around and some friends, and both will have links in the show notes. Now. On to the psychology. So, you may recall back in episode 62, we reported on the research of one Nicolas Guégon, who made the groundbreaking discovery that the best place to solicit women in supermarkets is the bakery aisle. 
Now, this week I was going to present two more studies that I have since discovered in a similar vein, one showing that men holding guitars are more successful at asking women for their numbers, and the other revealing experimentally that men are more likely to approach a woman with lower back tattoos than one without because they think they're more likely to put out on the first date the woman, not the man, though the man presumably also would be. So far, so hilariously stating the obvious, but then I looked at the author of these papers, and what should I see but Professor Gigon rearing his seductive Gallic head? Now, we all know correlation does not imply causation, and two data points do not make a trend line, but three? Three studies on the optimal dimensions of courtship, three studies with presumably deeply creepy Confederate recruitment adverts, three studies which, if dispositional attributions callback were to be applied would suggest that Prof. Guégon, Guégon is the sort of psychologist who uses his science powers, if not for evil, then certainly for very, very naughty. Thus did I resolve to completely determine the extent of his research, and to find out just how close Professor Guégon is to completing the first completely scientific, evidence-based guide to pulling. You'll be pleased to hear, dear listener, that I was not disappointed. I therefore present to you today Professor Nicolas Guégon's psychologically accurate 13-step guide to the delicate science of courtship. Hello, my name is Professor Nicolas Guégon. And I am here to reveal to you the mysteries of seduction. Some have said that to romance is an art. Others say it is no more than the base instinct of a bet. But I am here to tell you, my little cabbage blossoms, that the mind of a woman is like the burning heart of a neutron star or the complex structure of an atom. Chaotic, dangereux. Mais if we utilize la science, we may harness it for the betterment of humanity. Spécifiquement, moi, Nicolas Guégon. Et vous, mon petit élève, donc without further hesitation, je présente mon 13 steps à la séduction psychologique. Okay, so at this point I'm going to drop the frankly racist French accent and just describe the studies. So, study number one smiles. So far, so stating the obvious, previous studies have shown that waitresses who smile get more tips, and because we all know that the subtext of any interaction with someone in the service industry is basically just elaborate foreplay, Gigon decided to test if this clear indication of sexual preference transferred to a more naturalistic setting. So, he recruited a 22-year-old female confederate rated as averagely attractive, and instructed her to either smile or not smile at men entering a bar, before sitting at a table and reading a magazine. At this point, another confederate seated nearby began timing the man on a chronometer to see how quickly he approached the woman, or how often he looked at her. They did this an hundred times, which is very admirable in terms of experimental design and quite creepy in terms of real life, though I assure you, not as creepy as some of the later studies we're going to talk about. They found that more men approached the woman if she smiled at them, uh, than if she had not, than if she didn't smile at them, and if they didn't approach her, they still looked at her more if she'd smiled. Study number two, humour. You know, at this stage, I think it'll probably be easier just to read the abstracts. They pretty much tell you everything you need to know. So for this study, 
A male confederate in a bar was instructed to tell or not tell funny jokes to two other male confederates. A few minutes later, when the second of the two male confederates left, the first male confederate asked a female who was near his table and who had heard the funny jokes for her phone number. The previous expression of humour was associated with greater compliance from the male confederate's uh, request and with a higher positive evaluation. So there we go, pretty straightforward. Some details, however. First, I hate the way they call it compliance. It just sounds so creepy. Second, the participants were 60 young women found sitting alone outside various bars in Brittany. The Confederates were three 20-year-old males of well above average attractiveness uh, who were instructed to wait around until single young women arrived at the bar, then go sit near them and began talking about their summer jobs. After three minutes, one confederate would say, That's enough talking about work. I've got some good jokes to tell. At which point one of the other two would say, All right, go ahead. You always have some good jokes for us. I can only hope that this sounds less painfully unrealistic when delivered in French. After each joke was told, the other confederates laughed loudly and said such sentences as you always have good jokes and that's amazing finally after the last joke and subsequent congratulatory sentences uh, one of the two listeners would say we have to go now sebastian is waiting for us at which point they would get up and leave the remaining confederate would wait a minute before approaching the woman and saying hello my name's antoine I noticed you when you arrived here. I just want to say that I think you're really pretty. I have an appointment now, but I was wondering if you might give me your phone number. I could phone you later and we could have a drink together someplace to get to know each other. So, that's all pretty weird. Not exactly creepy, although what with the three confederates, the laughter observer and the female confederate who was also there to appear at the end to tell the participants she'd been involved in a psychology study and not just the most elaborate form of like pulling um, that she'd ever encountered and, you know, then asked her some questions uh, to rate the uh, Confederates. I can only assume that the bars they were patrolling got pretty crowded. Anyway, onwards and upwards. Study number three, attractiveness. Yeah, we're really plugging the bleeding obvious here, but for this one, uh, we're just having the abstract, which I think will be enough. So, Gender differences in receptivity to sexual offers have been found in previous studies conducted in the United States. However, this effect has never been replicated in another culture, and the impact of the attractiveness of the solicitor remains in question. An experiment was conducted in France, which male and female confederates of average versus high attractiveness approached potential partners of the opposite sex. 120 males, 120 females. Quite impressive. And asked them, Will you come to my apartment to have a drink, or would you go to bed with me? The great majority of men were willing to have a sexual liaison with a woman, especially when she was physically attractive. Who knew? Women were more disinclined to have a drink, but and none but one accepted the male's sexual request. The bad word. Such results confirm that men are apparently more eager for sexual activity than women are. Jesus Christ. Actually, I'm going to read one other bit of the study, although that abstract does kind of give you everything you need. This is from the methods section. The Confederates were assigned to different areas of the town. They were instructed to approach members of the opposite sex who were total strangers. The Confederates were further instructed to approach only passers-by they considered attractive enough to make them feel like having sex with them if given the opportunity under other circumstances. 
Okay, sure. They go on. It had been found in a previous study, obviously Gagon 2009, that this method led Confederates to be more persuasive when requesting the phone number from a participant of the opposite sex in the street. <sighs> they also noted that this study was conducted on a particularly sunny weekdays between 6 and 8.30pm because unwarranted solicitation for sex are okay if it's sunny. Study number four. I think we need something a little bit less creepy, if at all possible, so let's have a study entitled Say It With Flowers, The Effect of Flowers on Mating Attractiveness and Behaviour. You know, this one doesn't really even need the abstract. Basically, just having some flowers in the same room caused women to rate men as more attractive. Interestingly, in study two, when they used a similar solicitation procedure ugh, uh, to the humour study, the confederate once again said, my name is Antoine. You seem very nice. I wonder, would you give me your phone number? I could call you later and we could get together for a drink sometime next week. Whoever this Antoine is, he's done pretty well for himself, all things considering, getting a job as a psychology professor's standardised measure of attractive male quarter. Study number five. Songs. In a similar vein, it turns out that listening to songs with romantic lyrics increases the chances of women giving a male confederate their number. Who is this male confederate, you may wonder? Yep, you guessed it, it's 20-year-old confederate Antoine. Study number six, guitars. Like I mentioned before, women were more likely to give out their numbers when approached in the street by a young, attractive 20-something called Antoine, of course, who was holding a guitar, than when approached by a young, attractive 20-something male called Antoine who was holding a sports bag or nothing at all. Study number seven, smells. We know this one, uh, women in bakery section more likely to give out their phone numbers, yada, yada, yada. Only extra detail to add, 10 points if you can guess the name of the attractive 20 year old male confederate doing the solicitation. I'll give you a clue, it rhymes with pant fun. Study number eight, touching. Here, Gégon found that touching a woman's upper arm for one to two seconds increased the likelihood of acquiescing to requests from a young male confederate's uh, request for a slow dance in a nightclub or for her phone number in the street. Wait a minute. How old was that confederate? 20 years, you say. Was he called Antoine? Yep. Yes, yes, he was. He was called Antoine. Next, continuing in the well-established experimental context of nightclubs, we come to study number nine. Menstruation! Hooray! From the abstract. In a field experiment, 20-year-old women were approached by 20-year-old male confederates in the nightclubs, yes, before you ask, they were called Antoine, and solicited to dance during the period when slow songs were playing. Pun not intended, I assume. A survey was administered to the women in order to obtain information about the number of days since the onset of previous menses. It was found that women in their fertile phase agreed more favourably to the dance requests than women in their luteal phase or in their menstrual phase. But wait! The menstrual cycle also works out outside of nightclubs. Study number 10, more menstruation. From the abstract, 455, 455, 18 to 25 year old women were approached by, you guessed it, a 20 year old male confederate, obviously called Antoine, who solicited them for their phone number. It was found that women in their fertile phase, but not pill users, agreed more favorably to the requests than women in their luteal phase or in their menstrual phase. Interesting to mention that this study also goes out of its way to note that the experiment was carried out on particularly sunny days. Which makes sense, I guess. I mean, if you're a professor who wants to go watch an attractive male called Antoine solicit women for their phone numbers in the street, you might as well do it when the sun's shining. Study number 11. Firemen. 
three experiments were conducted with male confederates wearing or not wearing a firefighter's uniform. The results showed that women smiled more favorably and more openly and said hello more favorably to the firefighter. In the third experiment, male confederates asked young women in their street for the their phone numbers. Results showed that women agreed more favorably to the request of the firefighter. I don't know about you guys, but if I was approached by a fireman asking for my number, I'd sure hope he was called Antoine. And if I'd been in this study and a woman, I would not have been disappointed. Study number 12, dogs. In the last of four experiments, it was found that an attractive 20-year-old 20, 20 male confederate with a dog called Antoine, the confederate was called Antoine, not the dog, they didn't say what the dog's name was, but given the level of nominative creativity demonstrated by Professor Guégan thus far, I'm going to go out on a limb and say... He was probably called Antoine. A confederate with a dog was more likely to be given a young woman's phone number than when he was soliciting without a dog. Soliciting without a dog sounding like some kind of obscure criminal offence. Incidentally, in the other four studies, having a dog increased the confederate's success rate when just asking random strangers for money. So it would seem that dogs are pretty much useful all around, whether you're asking for money or phone numbers. Anyway, speaking of puppies, study number 13, breasts! I'm so sorry. Okay, we're going to take a bit of time over this one. The abstract opens with quite possibly the greatest example of psychology as the noble science of slowly and painfully working out the surprisingly obvious. It begins thusly. Previous studies have found that women with larger breasts than average were considered to be more physically attractive. Previous studies were very clearly required for that. However, it then goes on. In these studies, the effect of breast size on men's behavior was not considered a terrible oversight. In this study, two experiments were carried out in order to test the effect of women's breast size on approaches made by males. Right. Let me direct you to the most important word in that sentence. Experiments. Dear listeners, this study raises one of the greatest questions in the history of psychology. How? How do you experimentally manipulate breasts. I'll just give you a moment to let that sentence sink in. Okay, let's find out the answer. I know you're all desperate to hear it. The abstract continues. A young female confederate was instructed to wear a bra that permitted her to artificially vary her breast size. Yep, they did it, folks. They could have gone for the between subjects manipulation. Lord knows they've interviewed enough women over all these experiments. They probably could have managed to find 10 or so women of similar attractiveness ratings and range of bust sizes, but no. Professor Guégan is too rigorous for that. He knows that the very hypothesis of this experiment is that breast size contributes to attractiveness ratings, and so, in the interests of methodological rigor, nay, in the interests of science itself, he decides that the right option the moral option, dare I say it, the only option, was to have a young female confederate sit in a nightclub or outside on the street with latex stuffed down her top, no, sorry, her white figure-hugging sweatshirt that highlighted her bust, because science, and wait for men to come and talk to her. And what do you know, it was found that increasing the breast size of female confederates was associated with an increasing number of approaches by men. Ladies, gentlemen, Friends, scientists, we've done it. Stop the press, stop the clocks, stop the experiments. Physicists, turn off your particle accelerators. Chemists, throw down your chemicals. Psychologists, put the electrodes down and step away from the monkeys. We've done it. They said it was impossible, but we knew. 
We knew that if we waited long enough, one day a French professor of social psychology with a questionable ethics code and an obsession with the name Antoine would achieve the impossible. He would prove the ultimate hypothesis. The greatest answer to the greatest question mankind has ever known. In an event that will come to define the history of humanity, Professor Nicolas Gégon has solved science. Everyone, go home, kiss their children, love to their wives, fight with their dogs, safe in the knowledge that we, as a species, have solved it. What more to say, but mission accomplished. Ladies, gentlemen, fellow homo sapiens, we now know, perhaps in a way we've always known, that it took one genius, two latex leaves, hundred twenty-year-old males called Antoine to finally reveal to us what we knew all along men like boobs So there we go my little pomplemuses with these 13 steps, I, Professor Nicolas Guégon, can guarantee that you will find success in your romantic endeavors. Provided you are a 20-year-old male called Antoine, all you have to do to win the heart of that special lady, or indeed any of the several hundred ladies who frequent the nightclubs and pedestrian districts of Brittany, all you have to do is smile, be funny, be attractive, obviously, uh, give her flowers, touch her arm, sing her a song, preferably whilst holding a guitar case dressed as a fireman with a pet dog standing in a boulangerie while she is menstruating. And of course, ladies, don't worry, I haven't forgotten you. If you want to catch the attention of a lovely, handsome young man, maybe his name is Antoine, I don't know, it's not important. It's very simple. All you have to do Stick a couple of croissants down your brasier et voila, instant brigibado. Anyway, that is all from me, Professor Nicolas Guégon. Antoine is calling me from the next room. He has spotted an unattended young girl outside the restaurant across the street. So I must be about my business. Until next time, my little cochon d'inde. Be excellent to each other and may your vie romantique be ever en bleu. Bonsoir et remember. Les hommes, ils aiment les grandes scènes. Au revoir. Right, well, that's just about enough of Nicolas Guigon. Uh, I could go on to tell you about his baffling and creepy series of studies, specifically dedicated to finding out what attributes were most likely to get young girls picked up when hitchhiking. No prizes for guessing conclusions there. Uh, I could talk some more about how almost every one of these studies include the 20-year-old male confederate Antoine, despite the fact that they were published between the years of 2007 and 2011. Antoine therefore presumably being some sort of immortal, non-aging love machine created by Guigon in his attempts to make the perfect seduction robot. Or I could carry out some kind of statistical analysis to determine whether the 20 to, 6, 20 to 26 year old female population of Brittany was greater or smaller than the 3,337 women who have been reportedly reported as solicited by Guégon and Antoine the Amorous Android. But this, after all, is only a demi-podcast, so I shall leave you with this cautionary word from poet Ivor Cutler. 
in which he reminds us all that although science can provide us with many answers and the potential to change the world, we must always be mindful that in our efforts to better mankind, we do not inadvertently sow the seeds of our own demise. Until next time, think on this, dear listener. Think on this. If your breasts are too big, you will fall over, unless you wear a rucksack.